Welcome to Recox, the show where we learn how the world's best business operators build consumer brands from sourcing to selling. I'm your host, Mike Gelb, and this past week we were at Shop Talk, which is one of the largest conferences focused on the future of retail. We were fortunate enough to chat with a few successful entrepreneurs while at the exhibit. Before we get into today's episode, I want to tell you a little bit about Manufactured. Manufactured is an online platform that helps brands manufacture, finance, and distribute inventory across 20 industries and 25 countries. Stick around after the interview where I chat with Pernay, the CEO of Manufactured, who shares his tips for building new products and operating successful brands. Our guest today is David Greenfeld, founder and CEO of Dream Pops. Dream Pops is a plant-based superfood ice cream that is dairy, soy, and gluten-free, and is under 100 calories. We discuss the origin story of Dream Pops, how he got into grocery early on, the challenges of shipping frozen products, and how they invest in the manufacturing process and think about partnerships. Without further ado, here's David. David, thanks so much for being here. Thanks so much for stopping by. How are you? I'm great, man. Mike, thanks for having us. We're here hanging at Shop Talk, doing it. I love it. I feel like this is so long overdue, us meeting. So we're really excited to finally to finally meet you in the flesh, which is sweet. Dude, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Let's start from the very beginning. What was the aha moment um, or insight that led you to founding Dream Pops? Yeah, so I am a recovering investment banker. I spent a lot of time in finance, really enjoyed it and loved it, but um, knew that wasn't necessarily what I wanted to do for the long run. Um, I have a diehard sweet tooth have always been drawn to ice cream, candy, sweets, treats, and desserts. Um, some of my fondest memories are, you know, related to a, a Dunkaroos, Dippin' Dots, all sorts of, of snacks, especially 90s snacks. And I'm not that surprised that I ended up, you know, creating, we, we created a company that reimagines cult classic desserts and, and really a lot of 90s snacks and uh, breathes life into them and, and really makes sure that they're truly better for you. We really care about the nutrition stacks and, and creating plant-based better-for-you options in the uh, confection aisle. Um, which that's awesome. Also grew up on any snacks and appreciate kind of your mission and take with, with Dream Pops. Talk to me t- too about how like you were kind of iterating or doing kind of like, like your first flavors. And then how did that kind of happen with you then going out probably get manufacturers on board? Like talk about that, that, that whole process. Yeah, I wish I could say it was like super organized. But the truth is um, it really started with an idea and an MVP. Um, we were making, literally making popsicles in my mom's kitchen and then realized that we, we couldn't legally do that. So we got a tiny commercial space in downtown Los Angeles and, you know, myself and two others, we were hand making Dream Pops, the, the, the initial iteration. It was Berry Dreams and a couple other flavors, strawberry, uh, a matcha flavor and a chocolate flavor. And we have these metal molds, liquid nitrogen, we're flash freezing the popsicles literally you know it was in stacks of two um making hundreds and then thousands of units and and selling them into grocery stores um but we you know really it was truly vertical day one making a product because co-packers that we had met with couldn't make that unique shape couldn't use they they were requiring certain ingredients we didn't want to use and a lot of people just said it wasn't commercially viable so we had to do it ourselves what were some of the ingredients that they were kind of that were kind of hard to source or that co-packers that you were finding since you're starting out, you know, limited amount of quantities when you're starting out, what were what was kind of a, the toughest part working with co-packers? Yeah, I mean, there was really a push 
to have. We, we had six to eight, oftentimes less than 10 ingredients, most of the time less than 10 ingredients. And so um, there were issues with cross-contamination, whether there are already lines that were running dairy on a popsicle line. So uh, time with dedicating when we were starting in 2016, 17, uh, plant-based was coming up, but it wasn't necessarily as popular. And so the Comans couldn't make the geometric shape. They you, you had to have cross-contamination risk of dairy products um, and then really requiring certain, you know, artificial flavors, gums, just things that would, in our mind, lessen the quality of the product. How, how also, like, was it tough? Because obviously it's, this is frozen food. What are some of the challenges dealing with maybe a, having a frozen supply chain? Yeah, I mean, one that comes to mind that I haven't talked about for a while is we, if you look back when we first launched, we had these geometric bars and we put them in a clamshell mold like a cupcake tray. So it was in a plastic tray because we wanted to do everything different. And oftentimes that's the worst idea ever. Um, so we were literally hand making these unique geometric ice cream popsicles, putting them in a clamshell like those cupcake clamshells, and then wrapping them and putting them in, into grocery stores, into freezers. And because they weren't airtight, like when you're usually flow wrapping a, a popsicle and putting it into a, a bag, um, you have the ability to ensure that you know some, you have freezer burn that comes from having exposure to air in a clamshell mold. And so thinking about, wow, okay, you need to make sure that there's a nitrogen flush in the flow wrapping. You need to make sure that the product doesn't go bad, that it has a year or two, two-year long shelf life. Those are things I didn't really think about. We start having freezer burn and issues with spoilage and product going bad, and that's just because we didn't have the the knowledge of, wow, you need to have certain systems in your supply chain to ensure that you have a year or two year long shelf life. I mean, we were literally putting pops into plastic bags with stickers and selling them into grocery stores. How are you able to even get into grocery stores in the first place? Yeah. So, I mean, we, we did farmer's markets. We sold online. It's funny when you think about online, the requirements, you could really sell anything online, right? People aren't like auditing the UPCs and the nutrition labels. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty insane. Um, our first, you know, I would say Erewhon and Bristol Farms were the two retailers that, that gave us a shot. We were just crazy and out there and they thought it was a, a differentiated product. Um, but yeah, quick learning. Like when we went to both Bristol and Erewhon, they're like, look, you need UPCs. You need to have, you know, certain certifications in your facility, a HACCP plan. Um, and that pushed us to be like, wow, if we're going to onboard UNFI, you know, we're going to have to really formalize the business here. How large... Um in either Erewhon uh, or one of the other kind of retailers that that took a chance on you, chance on you. What was kind of like the first like PO like requirement for it, and how did you also think about like financing on the like and actually making sure that that was actually a successful channel for you? Yeah. So when we first launched, we were really pushing D to C, and like we wanted to be the daily harvest of ice cream, and we were packing trays that I mentioned into boxes with dry ice and shipping them around the country, and the whole model was like we'll get people to subscribe and buy ice cream and we'll have enough margin. What we didn't account for was when you're shipping frozen product in dry ice, it needs to land in 48 hours. And there were a lot of melted, you know, popsicles that were arriving on people's shelves. Also the cost associated with vertically picking, packing frozen was insane. And after three and a half months, we're like, we really need to pivot into retail because we're not going to make a lot of money. And the capital required to scale this is going to be insane. So that was a pivot into retail. On your question with the retail POs, you know, UNFI has some pretty strict standards in terms of what you need to do in order to like ship a product in. Um, but you had some great mentors and advisors that gave us advice as to what we needed to do to succeed. How to make sure that you're able to kind of succeed and get like those 
um, like the like, like the the right velocities whenever you enter a new chain. How are you thinking about that now? Yeah, now it's all data driven. So like whether it's leveraging spins data or you know Whole Foods data or data from Erewhon or other retailers around the country, Nielsen. We can now see how each of the SKUs is performing relative to the others. You can also chop up data and be like, wow, birthday cake is really popular right now in the novelties category or cookie dough or, you know, and if you look at some of our later launches and SKUs, birthday cake was one of them, cookie dough was one of them, mint chip another. Those are very popular when you look at data um, in novelties and ice cream in general. And so we're really trying to use data to make informed decisions about innovation as opposed to, oh, I really like Rocky Road. We should launch that flavor, right? So back then, I wish I could say we were sophisticated. It was really like, what do we think people are going to like at Bristol Farms in Erewhon? What looks like it's succeeding on shelf and, and gut and intuition? When you think about launching a new SKU, maybe, you know, birthday cake is kind of like the flavor of the season, for example. How do you think about the actual investment when it comes to the inventory investment? And how do you think about the rollout in terms of the launch? Is it typically like D2C and see what people kind of fancy and then and then we'll kind of go into retail based off of it performance well? Or kind of, how do you think about like the overall like launching new flavors? Yeah, and I'll give a shout out to Natalie, who's our head of ops at Dream Pops. She is incredible. And we have some great systems in place for demand planning and like seeing success and then whether or not that translates to thousands of doors. So what I'll call it is like we'll test in a few hundred stores in the natural channel, whether that's, you know, Erewhon, Whole Foods, Lassen, Citarella. Like these are regional chains with like five to 25 grocery stores. Um, sometimes we'll bet on a Whole Foods region if we can if we can get the innovation in. But my in my mind, I think the best way if you're only in retail and ice cream D2C is really tough to get trial, right? Like we're not, we actually turned off D2C for a little while because it's hard to make money on frozen shipping. So instead we're in 7,000 stores with Dream Pops now. We'll use a hundred to 200 stores, primarily natural and specialty. And we'll track, okay, how is mint chip, for example, just launched and banana cream. We're now watching the velocities. Wow. Mint chips performing really well. This looks like it could skew or do very well in a conventional account or in club. And so you're using data six months typically in those natural accounts to see, okay, we think that this would translate well into other channels. And your pricing, how do you also think about pricing in terms of, you know, DTC pricing versus, you know, wholesale? Um, obviously, you know, for, as you pointed out in the frozen category or really just in a lot of CPG categories, like you really need to like work in, in retail in order for, um, for you to actually be big or, or, or to be kind of successful. But how did you kind of approach pricing from the very beginning? Yeah, honestly, in the beginning, we were charging a a ridiculous amount of money for our ice cream online because we thought we could. I think quickly the customer is your best resource for figuring out pricing. But we went from selling 10 popsicles for $40, right, $4 a popsicle online to, wait a sec, this doesn't make sense, pivot into retail. Now look at your incumbents. You know, you have premium products, you have affordable products. Um, Where do you want to live? That's a really important strategy. We started up in the higher tier, you know, $6.99 for a cup and have tried to move that down to $5.99 a cup, sometimes $4.99. And the reason for that is... I think that there are a lot of amazing emerging brands that are so focused on margin in the early phases, so they price up because they want to be premium. But the problem is you need to create a price point. Like if your goal ambition is to be in 50,000 retail doors, you need a price point that speaks to every consumer. And so something that works in a higher end natural grocery chain will not necessarily work in Target, Walmart, Whole Foods. And so for us, we've brought price down as we've grown 
which also comes with margin improvements as you're getting bigger and more volumes. But I just, we've really needed to bring price down in order to ensure we get trial. Is that also as well to bring price down to actually then become more attractive to conventional? I know that right now you're primarily a natural channel, but is that also kind of the mission as well to kind of as, as proof points, not to mention any names, maybe to mention names, Walmart, Target, that this could actually work in conventional? Yeah. And once again, I think that's the hardest thing for any brand to do. And that's really the determining factor. Is this a scalable company to that 100,000 outlet or door level is, okay, are you going to try and price premium in conventional and will it work? I've only seen a few people do it well. Maybe if you're creating a category or you truly have something premium and differentiated. I've loved what Coconut Cult is doing in Sprouts. I think that that's they're at a 9.99 price point and it's really doing well and they're a top seller. I haven't seen a lot of those examples. For us, we wanted to sit next to Dibs, Haagen-Dazs, Ben & Jerry's, the biggest ice cream brands in the world. And so if we're going to win over the American customer, we have to price competitively. That is a strategic pricing choice. When you're going into a new account, like let's say a new chain comes to you and said, "Hey, we we want Dream Pops." We, we want to serve your cane. And you're thinking about through like the ops and the inventory and seeing if it makes sense. What kind of determines whether or not um, you're actually going to maybe pursue the, that opportunity? And then maybe like six months, a year down the line, if you actually see, or, or maybe, you know, even two years down the line, if you see that, it, that, that this is actually a profitable channel for you. Yeah. I mean, we were going to launch our syrups last year and then we realized that we were moving too quickly and overextended so we paused it okay because and we had a lot of demand a lot of retailers are ready to take the syrups mm. but our realization was like we're not quite there yet from a supply chain standpoint the cost of rolling this out is going to be way too much and we need to focus on what is working at scale and simplify um so every skew is like that too there are times where and once again you know kudos to natalie we run analyses on, okay, a specific skew. How expensive is it to get, to get the packaging for it, the raw materials for it? What, what's our MOQ per run? And I don't think founders think often enough, like we skew rat every year. We cut a few flavors that like were bottom bucket performers and weren't helping us. And so Natalie says this all the time, every skew is its own supply chain. And so being really thoughtful as to like, okay, are you, are you willing to add another supply chain to your business? Are you ready to financially support that? Do you have the margins that support that? And is this viable for the business long-term or are you just trying to have more flavors which can actually exhaust your customer and cannibalize the things that are performing well? So how do you think, I know that you obviously release new flavors, but how do you think about like the number of flavors that you release and kind of, and just in the future in terms of if, if there's like an annual goal or there's something else? Yeah, I think it's really an 80-20 rule, like looking at our portfolio, like we now only have three SKUs of our popsicles. We had five previously, so okay, we cut so two you're, so you're going because we're like, wow, this doesn't make sense. Uh, look at the data, look at the revenue last 52 weeks. Does it make sense? Is it worth our time and our effort to source certain mango? Like mango rosemary was an awesome SKU of popsicles that we had, but mango was really, you know, it was expensive to source and it wasn't driving the real growth. It wasn't a real growth lever. And so skew rationalizing, I think it's something really important for founders to do and look at what oftentimes it's like, you're, there's like two to three products that are driving most of the portfolio. So looking at that 80-20 rule and being like, where am I going to put my efforts? What supply chains am I going to optimize? You're far better off improving margins for the top performing SKUs than trying to add more flavors and products. How do you also approach like the co-packers that you work with and making sure that they can actually carry kind of the load that you need to as you kind of grow in scale? Yeah. So we don't necessarily just use a traditional co-packer model. 
with our products, they're really challenging to make. We have a hybrid manufacturing okay. model, so we buy pieces of equipment with CapEx and have exclusivity on the lines. And so we have really great partners that we've been able to scale with, but that was one of the biggest challenges in the early days was a lot of these co-packers, co-pack for all your competitors. And I'd argue in ice cream, the biggest challenge right now is there's no line time. And so a competitive advantage of Moat is having a facility that your hybrid that you own you have exclusivity on the line because you don't have to share it with five other competitors running popsicles or pints, et cetera. So, and so you're actually doing like, you're kind of investing, putting out like a CapEx into the, into actually uh, facilities and, and, and this kind of higher model. In terms of the financing on the, on those facilities, is that typically with like equity money that you use or? There's debt. So there are lenders that'll help you finance equipment. Um, there is equity capital we've raised as well, but we try not to use that. We have used it for CapEx. Um, but you know, we have the infrastructure now and there are great lenders out there that will help you finance equipment. How do you also make sure you're maybe Maybe this is also a question for Natalie too. Uh, but how how do you make sure that you're not maybe tying up too much working capital when it comes to inventory? It's a great question. We work with Ample right now, um, great partners. I think a you need to use working capital lines to scale your business. Um, just there's a lot of people that are scared of debt. You have to use it, otherwise you're going to really hinder your growth if you're a growing emerging brand. So highly recommend anyone do it now. That capital is very expensive, and everyone understands that. However, it's a far better option than diluting yourself with equity capital and using the equity capital to finance your inventory. So, um, on your question, you know, how do you think about the lines? You know, you have to be responsible, like looking at your pay down periods on a monthly basis. How quickly can I pay down those lines? What are my payment terms with all the retail partners I'm working with versus my D to C payment terms? How quickly am I going to pay that down so that it, it doesn't put you out of business and you know, it doesn't, you, you're not overextended, but I am a big proponent of those working capital solutions. No, that's helpful. Um, what were some of the biggest challenges for you, especially during this, like everything that, that's happened on the supply chain side? Were there particular ingredients that have been difficult to, to source? I think we got kind of lucky in the sense that our biggest challenge was just the ocean freight costs went up pretty substantially, um, but the commodities pricing didn't fluctuate as much as we thought it might. So that was helpful to our business. Interesting. Yeah, there was definitely a point in time where we had to order more coconut milk in bulk to ensure that we, you know, didn't run short. And then packaging is, is a challenge, right? Because when we're running our cups and our bags, um, you typically have print cycles and there are only so many people that can make cups, um, less so bags. But you need to order enough packaging to ensure that you don't run out in the next two, three months, but you also can't be sitting on millions of dollars of packaging inventory, right? So uh, that's where demand planning is really important and understanding how many units are you going to be shipping every month and are you able to ensure that you don't have too much capital tied up in raw materials or finished goods and that it's actually going out the door. Do you have any or have you had any issues with because, um, of course, you're doing a lot of kind of inventory planning farther out now with um, the supply chain, which which almost every brand has to do. Have you run into um, any issues with like dead stock or, or inventory that you're actually un unable to sell? Of course. And if people aren't, then, I, you know, that's really impressive. I think most brands are a great resource for that is like a grocery outlet. Um, there are retailers, discount retailers that will buy that inventory before it goes bad. And you can, you know, hopefully break even or lose a lot less than just having spoiled inventory.
How do you also think about just, you're obviously now in like 7,000 Swords, which is incredible. What's like the next stage, do you feel, of of Dream Pops? Like, is there a particular type of retailer that, that, that you haven't been able to get into yet? Um, not saying any names, but like, or can say names, but if, if you're listening, get Dream Pops in your stores. But what's kind of this like next phase of growth for you? Yes. Yeah, so we're launching Dream Pops Crunch, which is our shelf-stable candy product. It's kind of like a candy crunch bite. If you've ever had the M&Ms with the cookie center, um, very similar to that. It launches, it's rolling out nationally in May, so keep an eye out for that. It'll also be on D2C and Amazon. Really excited to have a product that plays, like our frozen business continues to grow, but candy is something that we've always wanted to play in, in retail. And so, you know, right being right on shelf next to, you know, some of the great, chocolate snacking brands. But also, if you think about it from a supply chain standpoint and seasonality standpoint, we don't have to worry about frozen trucking for the the chocolate snacking products. And then the fall and the winter when ice cream isn't quite as seasonal, you have a candy product that is seasonal. So you're always in season now, which is a a lot of fun. But yeah, where where are we taking this next? You know, we are in a lot of most natural specialty retailers. We're rolling into a lot more conventional accounts. Just uh, launched into Stop and Shop a couple months ago, rolling into the fresh market next month, which is more natural. And... A handful of others I can't say yet, but you'll just start to see Dream Pops in the frozen section and a lot more conventional uh, retailers, but you'll also start to see us in candy, in grocery, and in food service, which is really exciting. No, that is really exciting. When you do enter a new channel, how are you thinking as well about like forecasting demand or how many, or kind of like the velocities that you need to do in order to sell? Yeah, and that's where this is really a supply chain game and a demand planning game. Um, for candy, for example, rolling out a few SKUs, like initially we wanted to do five. Now we're actually only going to roll out a couple, and that's to make sure we did that with our bites, our frozen bites when we first launched them. When you only launch two SKUs, sorry, you're able to control a lot more and you have less risk of overproducing being stuck with moqs that then go bad and really hurt you um, from a financial standpoint so back to your question specific test channels of one two or three SKUs, watching the data very closely listening to your customer and then leveraging that data to expand on what's working and kill what's not working obviously we talked a little bit about the global supply chain crisis that's been happening over the last um year or two but just Obviously, with like everything that's happening in the market and this market downturn, obviously financing has become way more expensive. Capital is just way more expensive. How are you thinking about adjusting Dream Pops or, or has or your vision or growth plans for Dream Pops maybe changed in the past year? Yeah, I'd say last year, and you know, we were kind of at the tail end of a bull market. It was really about growth, hence the crunch, the syrups, like other innovation. We we're really trying to innovate and focusing on just growth, growth, growth. We've gotten very aggressive and disciplined in the last 12 months, just cutting costs wherever possible, staying as lean as humanly possible. As as much of a bummer as it is, I think in the next, you know, it's already happening, but th- this year we're going to see a lot of CPG brands that will not be around anymore that will go out of business. And so cash is king. Cash is probably worth 10 times what it was 24 months ago. So making sure that you literally cut the fat, that you are running as lean of a business as possible. Our goal is profitability. And if you can, you know, 1.5x to 2x your business every year and get have profitability or profitable months, then you're in a really good situation. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, also, like I'd imagine, you're probably assessing as well, like your, the channels that you're in, and 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 actually digging down if they're actually profitable channels, or should we actually get out of these channels? Yeah, we have. A, I mean, we do 
great team that, that is constantly looking at, you know, Dom, Nat, myself, and our team. We'll go retailer by retailer and look at profitability by channel, but also profitability by account, by distributor. So understanding, okay, if this retailer isn't going to make any money and doesn't have a pathway to doing so, we're out. And before, though, is it right that like, like before, maybe now, you were, it was maybe much more like growth-centric? Yes, yes. And we every time we look at a new retailer, we do a profitability analysis on when do we break even on the account? When are we profitable? Because oftentimes you have slotting, right? So like if you're looking at a huge conventional retailer, you need to pay tens of thousands of dollars, if not more, to be on their shelf based on velocities and what the SKU assortment is going to be. When are you going to break even on that slotting investment? And when are you going to make money? And if that is over a certain hurdle rate in terms of 10 months, eight months, six months, we may say, if we're not going to make money for 12 months, like this might not be worth it. No, totally, totally. Do you find that as well, just with everything that demand has changed at all for in your category or, or for Dream Pops specifically, whether it's increased or customer customer demand? Customer demand, yeah. So there was this explosion in plant-based novelties um, in 2020 during COVID-21. There's still growth. I'm seeing more flat growth because a lot of retailers brought in a ton of plant-based novelties. So I think that there's some some growth, maybe like anywhere between 3 and 10%, but it's not the same growth that we were seeing two, three years ago. Um, but there's definitely demand for plant-based. I mean, I saw that Hershey's just launched a whole skew of plant-based Reese's, plant-based Hershey's. Um, and I'm, I'm when it you know, I look at our category, I do see plant-based growth for ice cream and frozen novelties continuing. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting going to Expo West last year, because I feel like plant-based was the big takeaway. There were so many plant-based com- companies, and this year it was quite different. You know, it was not that plant-based. There was definitely still uh, quite a few plant-based brands, but there was definitely, I felt like, definitely other other areas, whether it's like brain food or, you know, um, you know, really just like interesting, like sparkling water brands. Um, and so, yeah, that's a lot of variety. I'm, I'm bullish on real food, real ingredients. Like this real ingredient-driven movement is kind of where I see us continuing to really focus and you know we don't use sugar alcohols erythritol stevia we use just you know clean better for you uh ingredients we use coconut sugar we use coconut milk coconut cream and so i think people are going to be way less focused on zero sugar yes there are some people that really like zero sugar but for us it's not about that it's about better ingredients um and you know just being able to pronounce everything on the nutrition label my final question for you is what would you value more? $100 of inventory or $100 in cash? $100 in cash. Yeah? Why? Cash is king right now. Um, I mean, I'm just saying cash is, is really valuable right now. And who knows if that inventory has gone bad. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So, um, no, but if it's my inventory, of course, I think both are really, really important. Um, but if you're just saying, uh, no, your inventory, okay. Very important. Obviously I need to, to, you need to sell that inventory, but, um, I just, that's more of a a pointed answer on the state of the world and how important cash is getting right now. Cool. Cool. David, this has been so much fun. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Cool. It was such a pleasure chatting with David. I really appreciate him taking the time at shop talk. Also, I love the product. Really, really do love dream pops. Highly recommend trying it out. I also highly recommend following David on LinkedIn where he shares his journey about building a CPG brand. So listeners, before we let you go, we wanted to give you some tips on how to help operate your business and learn how Manufactured is helping businesses. So we have Manufactured CEO, Pranay Srinivasan, who's CEO of Manufactured here on the line. Pranay, how are you? I'm good. Thanks, Mike. 
Thanks for jumping on. So tell me a little bit about the origin story of why you started Manufactured and, and how Manufactured's helping entrepreneurs with their inventory is issues. That's a great question. I think I've been in manufacturing my whole life, adult life, like 27, 28 years. And the only thing I've seen people do is either succeed widely from the inventory or go out of business because of inventory. There's no middle ground. Like you see people grow really fast and then die because of it. Like if you ask anybody out there, why would you not actually invest in a physical products business? And they'll tell you inventory risk. So inventory risk is this big, like, you know, mirage, which is essentially breaking it down uh, is something that I've tried to figure out my whole life. And uh, understanding inventory risk is core to why manufacturing exists is if you can't understand it, then you can't measure it. And if you can't measure it, you can't predict it. And if you can't predict it, you can't mitigate it. And so what is inventory risk? Is the risk that you will not be able to either make a product, you will not be able to carry the product, or you will not be able to sell the product. It's one of those three things. And because the industry is being broken up and so siloed, nobody knows what the other person's doing. Everybody just basically says, uses proxies for that inventory risk. Because inventory is supposed to be an asset. It sits on your balance sheet as an asset, but nobody thinks of it as an asset. Nobody thinks that $100 of inventory is $100 of cash. Why? Because they don't know how to actually value that $100 of inventory. To some people, it looks like zero, and to some people, it's worth a 1000 bucks. And so because no one understands how to value the inventory, it's because they don't know whether it is guaranteed to, make, to be made or guaranteed to be sold. And so the reason why we start manufacturing is because we want to solve we want to take inventory risk out of global trade transactions for small and medium businesses. We want to make small and medium businesses feel comfortable about being able to make inventory because they have a sale, be able to finance inventory in case that it takes longer to make or longer to sell, and to be able to sell inventory so that they can go make more. No, those are, I mean, I mean, that's, um, I, that, those are all really, really, really great points. And also I, I, I appreciate you sharing like the different type of products offerings. Like how, what are like some of the ways when, when kind of customers or potential customers come to manufactured, what are some of like, like, like the pain points that they're actually going through and how have you, maybe what's like a, a case study that where manufactured has, has really helped? Yeah. So I think one of the, we started out as a pure manufacturing company that hence the name manufactured because all we did was make products for customers. And so the biggest pain point we have with customers coming to us was saying, I want to, I want to change my factory. So find me a new factory. I need to add a factory because I can't keep up. Or, you know, will you find a new product, make a new product for me? So that was the first pain point we were solving, which is product related. Okay. I want to make you a new product, find a new product. But as we started doing business with those customers and making new products, they kept bumping into this finance problem, which is, I don't know how to finance more inventory. I'm growing faster. So if you think about a use case, a customer did a million dollars last year in top line, which is a standard e-commerce company. And this year, they're going to do $2 million because they know how quickly they sell out of the inventory. But if they go to a bank and or go to kick, go to any other financing platform and they tell them, I did a million dollars last year and I want you to give me a million dollars in inventory because I'm going to sell 2 million this year, nobody will give it to them because they don't actually understand the same inventory risk. I don't know how to sell product. I don't know how to make product. So why the hell would I finance product that I don't know you can sell? You only did a million dollars. So I'm going to give you a portion of that because that's less risky for me. So here's 300 grand. And so now you have to take 300 grand and do $2 million. 
And that is where the problem is. And that's why Shopify Capital exists. That's why Kickfurther exists. That's why all these companies exist because they have to cobble together six people at the same time of 300 grand each or three people of 300 grand each and then be paying 40, 45% interest rates so that they can pay back the cost of goods over time. And this is why we had started figuring out how to help our customers finance inventory because we could see the inventory risk much clearer than other people could. And we were like, this is a no-brainer. You've sold this six times. You've sold this again. Why aren't you, why aren't you able to afford inventory? And they're like, we don't have the money. Why don't you have the money? It takes three months to sell the product. So why can't you go borrow money from somewhere else? Well, Uncle Joe doesn't have money anymore. And my bank won't give me more than 30% of last year's revenue. And I'm doubling once every year. So we started our own finance company. And now we're realizing that there are companies who basically been selling inventory all along but have no clue how to approach international distributors, who have no clue how to list on international marketplaces, who don't have any idea how to set up overseas presences and don't have the volume. So imagine you do a million to $2 million a year in the US and you have people in Australia asking for your product and that Australian demand is $100,000. Now you cannot capture $100,000 demand. You would be like, buy from my US website and then be like, the shipping's too expensive. But if somebody was there who basically took care of their Australian product and basically increased your revenue by $200,000, you would pay them 6% or 10% to just handle that transaction for them. That doesn't exist today. So that's the next step that you're going to do is allow you to sell product. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And that's our episode for today. Thanks for listening to the whole thing, and I hope it was helpful. For more information about Manufactured, head to manufactured.com. It's also in the show notes. Thanks for listening.